podcast is a member of WGPRN, wildgamesproductions.com. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Darker Days podcast, number nineteen. I am your host, Vince, along with Mark. Mark, how you doing tonight, buddy? I'm doing fantastic, Vince. How are you? How are you doing? Oh, just super. Glad we're back after a little bit of a break we had. Yes, yes, a little bit of an absence, but good to be uh, back on the show, back on the air, and a nice little bit of new theme music you got there, Vince. Yeah, that's uh, from the good old PodSafe Audio Network. Uh, this one is. Uh, Actually called uh, "Here Comes the Dark Daisy." Oh, yeah. Why not? You know, something new. You know what I'm saying? Cool. Mark, you still there? I am. Oh, okay. You just got all silent on me there for a second. No, I'm here. <laughs> I thought maybe you disappeared on me. Anyway, uh, so we're back. Uh, we had a little bit of a break. Mark and I uh, did our thing. Mark, what have you been up to in the last month? Well, I've I've mainly been doing a lot of work with my uh, my little band, doing some gigs, doing some rehearsals, uh, keeping myself out on the road, um, away from the computer, and uh, away from gaming for for the most of it. But uh, in the last few weeks, got a mage Skype game up and running uh, with some guys I haven't played with in about ten years, and a Friday night D and D game. So yeah, everything's kind of ticking along. Uh, yeah, kind of nice. What about you? Oh, cool. What uh, edition of D and D are you playing Friday nights? Uh, it's Pathfinder, uh, oh. with a bunch of house, a bunch of house rules from the Conan D twenty game, and some some homemade shit in there too. I, I actually really am enjoying the Pathfinder game. So, yeah, it's good. Nice piece of work. Very cool. Definitely. Uh, actually, I've been gaming, doing my normal thing. We have a little local con coming up here in another week or so. So I've been planning some games. So Mepicon? Yes, the Mepicon. Yes, uh, mm. with the PA Pennsylvania people here. Uh, been trying to get David Hill Jr. to go to it, but he's been kind of busy with his uh, new product that he released, the uh, the Machine Age. Uh, what was Machine it? Machine Age. Machine Zeit. Machine Zeit. That's it. Thank you. I couldn't remember the name. Sorry, David, if you're listening to this. Probably saying, damn them. Shaking his <laughs> fist at the uh, radio right now. But yeah, I've been doing that. And actually, I've been up to uh, something that I remember uh, speaking of, which we got to thank Phil Wheatley for uh, his generous donation while we've been off the air for a little while. He had helped pay for the server bills. Which actually came up this month. <laughs> Out of nowhere, yeah. I thought that was another month to go, but uh, yeah. So thanks for that, Phil. We <laughs> really appreciate you keeping us alive. Yeah, I, I, I footed the rest of the bill, Mark, so you don't have to worry about it. You started freaking out in your email going, oh my God. But no, we're, we're safe, Mark. <laughs> cool. Checks in the mail. Checks in the mail. We're all good to go. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Some people ask what I've been involved with. Well, I actually have been doing some audio dramas for podcasting. So, Oh, cool. What sort of stuff? Well, so I've been auditioning for some and I got a part as uh, uh, actually as Dracula in one of the uh, Castlevania type podcast awesome and uh, Alucard audi- becomes Dracula nice yeah, that's right <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of the uh, that's really cool actually the, the voice is based off the uh, the, the Helsing uh, animation oh yeah I'm not sure about that. Crispin Freeman I think is the uh, person who does the voice and I auditioned for that and I pretty got that cool 
I believe. I you know could go wrong, but <laughs> and also I auditioned for another one. Someone did a Nightmare in Elm Street um, audio drama, so I auditioned for the Freddy part and looking Excellent. good for that. <laughs> uh, oh, fantastic! Yeah, we're back. I haven't done much gaming. Uh, third edition game we have playing for D and D. No World of Darkness, unfortunately. Mm, well, I'm I'm two sessions into this mage game on Skype, and uh, yeah, we've got a, a one guy in Los Angeles, one guy in Israel, uh, two of us in England, another one in Holland. So uh, finding a, a decent time is kind of a bit of a juggling act, but yeah, it's going well. It's really nice. Cool. So we'll just have to uh, step forward and move into our mailbag. Yeah. WGPRN News in depth. Well, I added the news with the uh, the bumper, so too bad, Mark. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what do we got in the mailbag? I know it's been quite a while, so we have to have some done in there. Um, so, yeah, thanks to Phil, like we already said. Um, uh, really generous of you, man, and uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, there's also been a couple of messages um, just checking to make sure that we haven't vanished. So, like Vince <laughs> says, it's been a few weeks since the last show, so we, all, we understand the concern. But, no, you know, we've just been busy uh, with one thing and another, and we're still here, still cranking out the shows. Uh, we're actually planning something kind of special for episode 20, which is the next episode, and that'll be our first anniversary. Can't believe it's been a year already. Yeah. Uh, so no, be sure to tune in for that, and you'll see that it has been well worth the wait. Maybe. We had a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it had better be. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, we had an awesome Darkling submission from Michael Andriuk on the Vampire the Eternal Struggle card game. Meant to release that last week, but I had a technical hitch. Sorry about that, Michael. Uh, you'll see this hit the airwaves in just a few days. Want to watch out for. <laughs> the technical hitch was Mark was on the road and didn't feel like doing anything. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't get into my account for some reason. I realized I'd forgotten my own username. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, how embarrassing. Uh, what's that um, email address, Mark? <laughs> Uh, Days Radio <laughs> at gmail dot uh, com. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, good news, which is you know not exactly new news now, old news. We reached the uh, magic one hundred fans on Facebook, so we have a new Facebook URL, which is just www.facebook.com slash Radio. So you can find us at that new and improved URL there. You know what's fun- You know what's funny about that, Mark. Fun. Uh, a couple days after we got the URL, they changed the rules to anyone can have a URL no matter how many fans you have. The swines. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, what? Ugh. Crazy. Oh. Yeah. And uh, as always, I want to give shouts out to the numerous members over at the forums. Uh, Vampire LARP, L1X, 8-Bit God, Stranglehold, Metrophilian, Kuth <laughs> Jernabo, Amakusa42, Lass, Fenris, Wound, Glandwitch, Stygian Heart, Grey Wolf, and Glenn. Glenn? Yeah, Glenn. Was that two N's or one? Uh, that's with two N's. Oh, okay, cool. Well, welcome everyone new to the forums. I know the forums have been really quiet lately because, well, you know, we've been quiet. We had the uh, Beckett go off to his uh, assignment in the military, so he'll be gone for a yeah. while. He's one of our mods. We wish him best of luck and... Uh, Come back if you're listening soon. to us out there, Becca, to take care and yeah, best of luck, like Vince says. And uh, thank you to the rest of the mods that have been there. And uh, oh, and Gen Con's coming up this year. Don't forget August 2010. I will yeah, be at Gen Con live and in person. <laughs> Not on. Are you going to do some broadcasting from there? No, 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 no. Uh, I actually I may do something, but nothing that I could put on the air right away. So who knows. See what happens. I know I will be involved in, um, I think it's a Mage and Awakening game. 
Oh, cool. Oh, be sure to have fun with that. Yeah, I just, I, I think I was in an extension. I don't know which one it was. I forgot offhand. I remember I saw a mage and I went, ooh, and I just grabbed it as soon as I could because those tickets were going fast. Really? Well, fast and you can burn them. Uh, <laughs> don't do that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, let's head over to a little bit of our uh, network news. And uh, Mark, as we saw, Mirage Arcana was really plugging them out this month. Well, last month, uh, I should say. Oh my god, yeah. While we've been idle, they have been forging ahead with a whole bunch of amazing new episodes. They've done Iron Kingdoms, they've done Greyhawk, they've done Forgotten Realms. They did a two-part Dragonlance special featuring an interview with Trampus Whiteman, who is one of the designers with Margaret Weiss's Press. Fantastic work, guys. Uh, keep it up. I'll be catching us up soon. Uh, yeah, Dragonlance is a great setting for D&D. And I know another podcast I do, but I won't mention it on the air, but I'll be talking with Margaret Weiss coming up soon, so be happy to speak cool. with her. Good stuff, good stuff. I, she worked uh, a stall with me once, years ago, back when I was selling RPG games in a bookstore. She very kindly let me beat her at her card game, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or something it was called, uh, and then thrashed me for the remaining three rounds. <laughs> nice. I'll have to uh, ask her to see if she remembers that. Uh, she won't. No, oh, okay. She, she called Clive Barker creepy. I won't forget that in a hurry. Oh, my God. Uh-oh. <laughs> Shh. Um, another item in news, and this one comes from us. Uh, we submitted our podcast for the Emmy Awards. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see how, see how that goes. Thanks to everybody who helped choose the episode that we had to put in. And they're going to listen to that one. We chose episode 13, uh, and they're going to listen to a couple of others. And, yeah, we'll, we'll see how far we get. Yes, that's right. So uh, best behavior, Mark. And, uh, hey, judges out there, we love you. Hi. Checks Hi. in the mail. Yeah, <laughs> checks in the mail. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we'll see how far we get. Uh, we're just in round one right now, and I believe the entry is closed sometime in June. So, Okay, cool. And I know we're uh, up against uh, some really good podcasts, but I think we have a little bit of an edge mark. We're up against Eddie Webb, his podcast. I saw him on the list today. Oh, who cares about that? I mean, we love you, Eddie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we have some strong competition, but I think we have a little bit of an edge. But now that I know Eddie Webb's in there, we might be in some trouble because we were the only World of Darkness themed podcast so damn you Eddie Webb yeah we have to withdraw him yeah <laughs> I'll have a talk with him around the back yeah. Um, yeah and as we mentioned earlier on uh, next episode will be our first anniversary special there'll be lots of special guests fun games bacon be there but, uh, bacon yeah there'll be bacon you know there will what about sausage um, there's always sausage alright <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in uh, White Wolf News, they released um, uh, around, I think it was April 1st they released it, actually, right, Mark? Right, Dudes April 1st, of, yes. <laughs> Dudes of Legend was their spoof this year. Uh, awesome. Fantastic. If, if you listen to um, Eddie Wolf's podcast, the uh, White Wolf broadcast during that time frame, he explained the whole history behind of uh, Dudes of Legend and <laughs> why it came about and why they released it. It was a pretty good story. I won't spoil it for you if you want to go listen to it, but uh, it's very enjoyable. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the early World of Darkness games that I used to run back in the 90s, actually. It's not all that different from those <laughs> trench coats, katanas, ninja strippers, you know, the whole thing. It's really good. It's worth, worth checking out. Um, other news from uh, The Wolf, Matt McElroy of Flames Rising is giving us a great sneak peek of Yazata, the Persian gods, mm. which is a new fan-proposed pantheon book for Sion, written by Siavash Mojirad and Dean Shomshak. Now, Yazata features the gods of ancient Persia, as well as new boons, knacks, birthrights, and purviews, including a new general purview, stars. Hmm. Now, this preview takes a look at some of the new star purviews you'll get to play with in Yazata, and you can head on over to Flames Rising to read more about it. 
Yeah, they're finally releasing something for that. I'm glad to see that they're still continuing that. Sion was, yeah, immensely popular. And uh, as I understand it, it kind of stands alone from the World of Darkness, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, a very popular game in this time. I, I never got um, really into it, but I, I hear great things about it. I remember Beckett was really pushing it on the forums for a while, but he couldn't really get anybody to join him. Yeah, I never played it. I don't know. But yeah, sounds fun. Um, there's been some interesting teasers have been leaking out about the World of Darkness online uh, massive multiplayer online RPG game um, there's mainly in the form of artwork over at the CCP site World of Darkness Online has its own page there and you can see these a variety of different very cool vampire themed pictures um, but there's also been footage has come out of what looks like character models for the game. Uh, they're basically displaying technology that allows for the animation of long dresses and trench coats and various kinds of uh, fabric. Uh, but it looked very kind of World of Darknessy. So current rumors are that we're starting to see uh, some movement on that front. Well, I, I want to see where they're going with this. I don't really, I don't know. I can't really see a World of Darkness MMO that's going to be interesting because they're all just like. Here's quest A. Go collect me ten pelts of wolf blah. <laughs> when you well, get done with that, come back and collect my blah, blah, blah. From what I understand, I, I think I seem to recall reading an interview a couple of years back or a year or so ago that they were going to model it in some way or form of EVE Online, which is a very player-driven uh, player-generated set of storylines. Now, EVE Online is, is kind of famous for its economic systems that are, that are driven by, by player activity. And if they can pull something like that off for uh, World of Darkness, yeah, you should be able to have politics and, uh, and adventures and stories and quests that grow out of what the players do as opposed to too many pre-scripted, like you say, you know, instanced quests being given to you by, uh, by you know, computer-controlled NPCs. But, um, yeah, we'll see. They need to be innovative, I think, because like you say, yeah. the MMO market is pretty cornered by some of the big dogs, and I have to see if the wolf can uh, take <laughs> a bit of territory there. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I, I played the Eve games, and some of them were, I mean, well, actually, there was only one Eve game, actually, I should say. I remember mm-hmm. playing some Eve game, <laughs> and I know it wasn't the online one, but I, I didn't really, I, it was all right, but. I didn't know. do it for you, really? No, I don't mean to talk bad about our CCP big brother there, but, you know. Yeah. Oh well, but the skepticism is good. We'll see. We'll see what what comes out of it at the end of the day. Um, now, White Wolf has also said they're still working on their digital community tools. <coughs> now, they themselves acknowledge this is an ambitious project. Um, mm. There was some talk about this during the recent Camarilla Convention campaign. Sorry, Chronicle management software. <laughs> Uh, stuff allowing you to to run your chronicles online. Um, I want to say like a virtual tabletop, but I'm not sure if that was mentioned. Now, mm. Wizards of the Coast famously got bitten in this regard by um, by kind of running before they could walk. So personally, I'm happy to see White Wolf take their time over it and make sure it's all sorted before formally announcing their release. You, you mean the virtual tabletop that Wizards had announced? Yeah, they actually they're still really working on that actually. And they, even though they said they dropped it, there uh, leaked out I think a couple of weeks ago that. It's still in the works. Someone from Wizards of the Coast dropped the hat on that one. Oh, interesting. Well, it'd be good to see if they can actually make it work. Mm. They're, they're, they're um, uh, digital, what's it called? Digital Insider? Digital Initiative? Uh, oh, the character the, builder, anyway. That's, that's yeah. working very well for Wizards of the Coast. Mm. Um, they're getting a lot, of, uh, a lot of good product out there. Well, they, when they switched to all digital magazine and everything, I guess their way of... For the character builder, I guess, you know, you pay $10 a month, you get two magazines, and you get the adventure builder, the monster builder, and you get the character builder as your payment, so. Yeah, and that actually kind of ties into the last news item as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yet again, some of the guys from White Wolf, most notably Russell Bailey, came on RPG Net recently and yet again clarified the position of White Wolf as regards uh, print-on-demand plans and e-publishing um, in much a similar way that Wizards of the Coast has done with some of its rules delivery systems for D&D 4th Edition. White Wolf very much are transitioning to e-publishing. Um, they're still sorting out plans for print-on-demand so you can buy a PDF and have it printed and mailed to you as a, as a hard copy book. And they still have some print books in the pipeline to come out later this year. I believe Mage Chronicler's Guide just got put back to August, uh, if, um, if I'm not mistaken. And they're also planning something else that they're not talking about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're very much going to an electronic uh, electronic uh, delivery medium. Um, and it's the way to go. You know, That's the way the market's gone. That's the way uh, the role-playing games are, are moving at the moment. So yeah, you know, you got well, kind of got yeah. to keep with the times, I suppose. Especially with the iPad coming out now and everyone's going to, as soon as that price drops, everyone will be having those at the gaming tables and then, what, you know, carry one thing in a leather case protecting it and you can have, say, a hundred books in there. Exactly, as opposed to the back-breaking monster that I carry to every game. It would be good to take something slimmer. <laughs> There's still going to be those people that, that say, no, 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 computers at the table, no iPads, no this, that, and, and bring the books, and we love those people, but you're a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do both, so I'm kind of like half-man, half-dinosaur, so, which is kind of cool, too. So you're like a were-dinosaur now? It's, well, it's a step up from a weird chicken, that's for sure. <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> I think that wraps up the news now. It does indeed, yeah, yeah. F- fair few bits, but that's that's the amount for the day. All right, let's head into everybody's favorite segment. Yes, folks, welcome to the secret frequency. You stepped on and the today, children. Beg pardon? You stepped on the little children, Mark. I did, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to little ghost girls later on in the episode. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Today we're going to look at things that have been lost to history. Um, this little item was sent to me on Facebook recently, uh, and it originally derived from an article over on Cracked.com, which is a pretty crazy website, actually. Um, but it was interesting and amusing, and I just had to share it. Uh, the original article is about the six top inventions that were lost to history for strange reasons. Uh, things like the steam engine being invented 1,700 years ago and then rediscovered only a few hundred years uh, later. Uh, hmm. Since, oh, some of these are actually a bit dull, you know, like <laughs> concrete and how to stop bleeding. Um, but three of them are actually really, really cool. So the idea is this: if you could draw a graph showing the growth of mankind's knowledge and technology, you'd think it would look like a staircase, steadily edging upward year after year as we get a little bit smarter than our ancestors. Not true. Some of the most amazing things ever discovered wound up lost or forgotten for centuries for utterly ridiculous reasons. And we're going to take a look at three of them right now and show how you can use these ideas in your World of Darkness games. So we're going to start with the world's largest solid gold statue. Hmm. It's called the Golden Buddha. And it's a solid, solid gold statue Buddha. that's almost 10 feet tall, more than 12 feet wide, and weighs in at an impressive five and a half tons. In other words, it isn't the sort of thing that slips between the couch cushions and vanishes. If, that, if that's one big couch, if it does. <laughs> and it's old. Experts' best guess is that it's from the 13th century. So about the time that Marco Polo was pretending to explore China, somebody in <laughs> Thailand was shaping a huge load of gold into this guy. A yeah, from of gold. the late 17th century until about the 1950s, no one had any clue that the statue even existed, even though it was in plain sight. How is that possible? Well, what happened was this. In the, se- in the seven- I'm glad you asked that, Vince. Yeah, wow. 
In the 1700s, the Burmese were invading Thailand, and the Thai king needed to protect the country's most precious assets, amongst them being this ginormous solid gold statue, which was sitting around all shiny and rich looking. So the king ordered that the locals cover it with plaster and stick it in an inauspicious temple. A year later, the Thai population revolted against the Burmese occupation and took back control of the city. Unfortunately, they didn't bother to take the plaster off the Golden Buddha right away, and eventually people forgot that there were 11,000 pounds of gold under there. Which is about $200 million worth of gold, I should say. Wow. Decades passed, and the Golden Buddha, Buddha sat still there in stucco. Eventually, the statue was relegated to a tin-roofed shed, because it was simply just in the way. You know, it was this ugly plaster thing that was way heavier than it should be. But it couldn't be destroyed because it was a Buddha statue. Ultimately, even the shed started falling apart. <laughs> so in the 1950s, the monks figured they'd better put the effigy somewhere out of the rain. On the way in moving it, though, they dropped the statue in a mud puddle and just sort of left it there. I mean, seriously, monks, get it together. What? But when one of them poked at the statue the next morning, some of the plaster scraped off, revealing that, oh, wait, this is actually one of the most valuable things in the history <laughs> of mankind. That's exactly what he said? Yeah, but but in Thai. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, how do, you, how do you use this idea in your game? Well, look, here the story is one of, obviously, immensely valuable objects hiding out in plain sight. This is a great plotline to use for those mage games where the characters are hunting for obscure Atlantean artifacts, or for hunter games, uh, which is run in the style of Indiana Jones, or for Prometheans looking for an ally who is accidentally been covered in plaster and stuck in a museum it ties in pretty well with the secret frequency we did on Blythe House a while back yeah. that storehouse for the British Museum yeah. uh, you could very easily send your player characters into a place like that looking for something apparently mundane which is really a supernatural artifact of awesome power even better place the artifact in plain sight in a famous location like the Louvre and base the adventure around the characters having to steal something from under the scrutiny of the world's media at a highly publicized exhibition. When I, when you, when I saw you wrote this up, I was thinking about this, how to use this in a game, and I was thinking maybe like the statue they, the players found, excuse me, the players found out about it, and they found the vampires are after the statue because it holds some kind of ancient secret to finding some of the ancient vampires, if you want to go with that storyline. Mm, yeah. Maybe it's tr somehow the statue is a key to some type of soul or something. Maybe demons, if you're playing a demon game, are in search for this statue because uh, maybe it holds the key to hell. It'll yeah, open up cool. an apocalypse on the earth or something like that. That's what I was thinking. It, could, e yeah. it could even be a vampire, one who's fallen into torpor, and people yeah. don't realize that this is actually a torpid vampire. They think it's a statue. Put it in plaster kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's interesting. Feed it some blood and unleash it on the uh, the world. Always good. Yeah. Now, item number two on the list I was sent is the cure for scurvy. Um, now, before meth addiction was the number one cause of tooth loss amongst otherwise healthy pirates, it was scurvy. <laughs> and scurvy, as hilarious as the name sounds, is no ball of laughs. First, your gums get all bloody, your teeth loosen, then your skin gets spotty, and you start bleeding from your mucous membranes. Finally, you develop open sores and become immobile. And it was the scourge of seagoing folk for centuries. And people in Manhattan streets. Was that? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Go ahead. Um, then in 1747, a naval doctor named James Lind demonstrated that scurvy could be cured with fresh lemons. Lemon love was even enacted into law. All ships in the British Navy were required to provide a lemon juice ration for their seamen. 
The lemon juice ration led to British sailors being dubbed limeys because at the time people thought all citrus fruits were basically the same and uh, all citrus fruits were called limes. And as we'll see, this mistake had some rather unpleasant consequences. The point is, thanks to lemons, scurvy was a thing of the past. But scurvy was just gearing up for scurvy to the revenge. Most diseases need to develop a new strand to have their big budget sequel, but all scurvy needed was for everyone to forget the cure, which everyone probably did. This was bad news for a team of British scientists who took a three-year journey to the South Pole and packed nothing but biscuits, canned fat, cocoa, butter, and sugar, which was supplemented by their horses when starving when the starving time came. Wow, what a diet that was, Mark. Yeah, this, this is clearly not true because if they were British scientists, they would have taken tea with them as well. So I, I That's correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, despite the fact that it was almost 200 years after the cure for scurvy was discovered by one of their own damn countrymen, they were plum baffled when everyone got scurvy. So what happened? Well, the thing is, they, they never really understood the lemon thing in the first place. Which is why the British Navy switched the ration from lemons to limes in the early 19th century. Limes were plentiful within the empire. Unfortunately, they're not as rich in vitamin C as lemons are, and no one made the link between vitamin C deficiency and scurvy until 1932, almost 200 years after they first figured out that lemons helped. And not only were the limes not as chock full of anti-scurvy nectar, but the Navy didn't serve it fresh. They served it as juice. And in the process of juicing, they got rid of a good deal of vitamin C. So, yeah, it turns out there's a downside to living on boats in the middle of nowhere for months at a time. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, better naval technology shortened voyages, so scurvy didn't have a chance to manifest itself as it used to. So everybody thought the limes were doing the trick, but they weren't. And if this wasn't already bad enough, the dominant theory at the time was that rotten meat, not lack of vitamin C, caused scurvy. So all of these things combined in one horrific expedition to the Antarctic. It wasn't until 20 years later that people actually used something called science and evidence to nail down the actual cure for scurvy, which, it turns out, was the same cure discovered a couple of centuries before. (gasps) Shocker. Shock. Now, this is an interesting one because it deals with the idea of a lost cure for a horrible disease. So the ramifications for this are obvious enough. A dreadful disease strikes in your chronicle, and the characters have to find the cure possibly by looking for ancient sites where that forgotten cure is recorded, or finding a long-lived or immortal being who can remember the cure firsthand. Nice and simple enough. But you can add some cool complexity to the equation, though. What if we're not dealing with a simple disease? What if we're dealing with some kind of abyssal infection, like the kind of thing that you get in Intruders from the Abyss, Night Horrors the Unbidden, or Predators for the Werewolf line? Now you're not just looking for some kind of medical miracle. You're looking for a way to stop the infestation of a terribly intelligent alien life form. And what if this infestation figures out what you're trying to do and takes steps to stop you? Or what if you track down some ancient vampire that has a cure after, but he has no interest in helping you? Suddenly, finding the cure is not the simple prospect it seemed at first. Now, the last item um, that I was going to highlight here has the wonderful name of the Great Hedge of India. Oh, Mark, one second before you continue. I was thinking for that last one, uh, maybe an ancient vampire's blood is like the key or the cure and he doesn't know it. And the players have to search off and go find this ancient vampire from that time period. This would be a perfect Dark Ages game, maybe. So we'll have to see what happens there. I think if he's not particularly willing to, you know, give up his blood for these little diseased mortals. Nice one. I like that. Go on. So, yeah. The Great Hedge of India. 
a hedge, like, you know, a bunch of bushes in the row. Um, so why would people remember a hedge? Well, how about if this hedge was approximately 2,000 miles long? Be a big hedge to trim. That's, that's, that's quite a hedge, yeah. yeah. Such a thing did indeed exist in India once upon a time, and it was probably big enough to be seen from space. Why would somebody bother to plant a hedge that ridiculously huge? Salt. They're bored. No, salt. Oh. Yeah. Salt used to rule the world in those days. Um, it was so valuable, it was often used as currency. And for centuries, despots who wanted to control a country only needed, only needed to control its access to salt. The British East India Company, for example, brutalized India for decades with a crippling salt tax. There was only one problem. Salt was totally accessible to anybody willing to travel to either coast during the summer because <laughs> the salt just sits there in the evaporated ocean bed waiting to be mined. So the uh, British East India Company came up with an evil genius caliber solution to prevent salt smuggling. They hired demonic gardeners to raise a living impenetrable wall of thorns that became known as the Great Hedge of India. And for 40 years, this big bush acted as the blocker of free salt. Yet once it was dismantled, its memory totally disappeared from India and Britain's collective consciousnesses. So how do you forget about a 2,000 mile long hedge? Mm. Well, at some point in the 1880s, the Great Hedge was dismantled twig by twig, reworked into tasteful patio furniture, and then burned, <laughs> probably gleefully. And for more than 100 years, no one bothered to record or even mention it in any of the definitive accounts of India's history. By 1995, the Great Hedge of India was entirely forgotten, and might have stayed forgotten indefinitely, if not for one librarian, Roy Moxham. Uh, Moxham followed up a footnote in an obscure text and rediscovered evidence of a 2,000-mile-long hedge, a hedge that happened to be associated with a hated initiative of, of, of a brutal regime and that had inexplicably slipped the mind of an entire country. Now, this idea ties back into the concept of the Golden Buddha statue, but on a wholly different scale. Here we're looking at the concept of something that has gone missing in plain sight, but it's hard to identify simply because of its enormous size and the fact that people have deliberately ceased to remember it. This latter idea of willful forgetfulness connects well to some already established ideas in World of Darkness games. In Wewolf the Apocalypse, for example, you had the delirium, the tendency of mortals to forget or rationalize their encounters with Guru. In Mage, both versions, you have disbelief, which works in much the same way. Mage also features uh, abyssal and supernal magic and entities, many of which can't be recalled by mortals, even if they wanted to. The mortal mind just simply cannot comprehend his experiences of these phenomena. So, imagine if there were a vast magical working or construct that was out in plain view, yet those viewing it were simply unable to see it. Or if they were able to see it, once it vanished or was destroyed, they promptly forgot it ever existed. You might have an entire city that used to be known as a place where the mundane and the supernatural coexisted, yet when well, paradox or war or demons or whatever brought it down, it vanished into legend or into forgetfulness. And uh, if you want to get on Google, you can check out legends of Iram of the Pillars, I-R-A-M, Iram of the Pillars, for a real-world example of a city that m simply vanished from mortal recollection. Hmm. You, uh, yeah, you could have a magical or supernatural phenomenon that recurs in a certain place at a certain time, yet is invisible to mundane eyes. Um, a cathedral that only appears in a city once every 27 years, for example. Local mages, changelings, vampires, or whatever might scramble to gain access to its secrets and win favors from its priests uh, before it vanishes again. And if you rule that even supernatural beings forget it was ever there, then gaining entry and retrieving their secrets becomes all the more important. 
when you were reading this, the last part of that out, Mark, I was just thinking, actually, just came to mind, I was just thinking the whole Dogma movie when they were trying to get inside the church to forgive their sins and get their wings. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's like a church that the players have to find uh, that they found out that a, a group of werewolves or a group of demons are trying to figure out to get in so they can redeem themselves or maybe it holds the key to, to uh, unleashing another apocalypse as opposed to this actual unleashing an apocalypse. That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, I, I like the idea of thing which you know, which is only there some of the time, and which even when it is there, most people can't see it. I think that works. That works really well for World of Darkness. Well, yeah, something that that'll appear once every so often, and you have to figure out where it is. Do the whole Indiana Jones? Oh, it'll appear at this time, and hold the staff up, yeah. and right, <laughs> exactly, yeah, <laughs> cool. So there you have it. Uh, three pieces of forgotten history to inspire your game. If we look at the larger list, uh, check out crack.com. There's plenty there to spark ideas, um, including some really bad jokes about concrete. <laughs> they're, they're very poor, they are. All right, let's move on to our next section. Classic World of Darkness. So on the docket for the Classic World of Darkness, Mark, you decided you wanted to talk about Wraiths and Spectres. Yes, Wraith the Oblivion in particular, and its uh, source book, Dark Reflections, Spectres. Now, we've had uh, requests for Wraith going back right to the beginning of the show, and mm-hmm. unless I'm much mistaken, Wraith is the one game line for World of Darkness that we haven't covered in any of its incarnations. I don't think at all. Yeah. Not at all, no. So we're going to give it a little bit of undead love tonight. Um and specifically, we're going to look at it through the lens of a black book called Dark Reflections Spectres, which we've had specifically request a review. So we're going to cleverly tie those two together for you. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Wraith the Oblivion, what is it? Well, a game. it's uh, a game yeah, for the old <laughs> partners. The idea is you're dead and things get worse from there. And you play somebody who is a wraith, a ghost, who has died... And yet you are tied to the world of the living because there are things that you believe in, that you care about, people that you want to look after, jobs that you left undone, passions that motivate you. There are objects, places, your childhood teddy, your car you spent 15 years restoring, your house, your wedding ring, objects that uh, tie you to them as well. Fetters, they're called. Passions and fetters. Things that you feel and things that you once owned and now own you. And because these things are still around, and because they still have a hold on you, you're not, you're not move on, and you're 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 kept behind in a kind of strange, mysterious afterlife. It's not the true afterlife. It's not heaven. It's not hell. It's something else. And you're not alone. There's a thing inside you that wants to pull you to oblivion. That wants to destroy you. There's a part of your life, your of your inner self that won't stay behind and still deal with your passions, deal with your fetters, uh, and perhaps some release, find some transcendence, find some happy hereafter. But there's a part of you that wants to destroy you, destroy you completely, drag you screaming down into oblivion and turn you into something utterly, utterly horrific. And that's called your shadow. Wraith has a shadow, and the shadow is that self-destructive, uh, angst-ridden, dark, grim, horrific part of themselves that will destroy them if they can. What makes Wraith as a game really interesting is you play your character, you play your Wraith, and the other players play as your shadow. 
and your shadow has some extra powers that it can bring into use and uh, things it can tempt you with. If you do this, if you, you know, skin that young child alive, I will grant you these extra abilities. And a player, your, your shadow player will tempt you with these things and you as the, as the wraith player decide how you're going to respond to this. And then, of course, you're playing someone else's shadow. So the entire group is um, kind of connected together in this incestuous web of uh, mutual abuse. <laughs> kind of cool, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wraith is, is, as you may have gathered, a pretty dark game. Uh, uh, out of the world of darkness, you know, which is a fairly dark place to begin with, Wraith has the reputation of being one of its grimmest incarnations. Now, I just wanted to say a couple of words about Wraith's cosmology. What is this afterlife like? Because it'll make a few things more obvious when we get into the uh, dis discussions of specters. In essence, there is a, uh, an alternate version of the world called the Skinlands. Uh, sorry, it's called the Shadowlands. We live in the Skinlands. The Skinlands is the name for the mortal world where humans and everybody lives. Just on the other side of the shroud that separates the living from the dead are the Shadowlands, a shadowy, tainted, rotting, decaying reflection of our world, um, a shadowy version of the Umbra, um, a sort of spirit world of the dead, if you will. And dotting the Shadowlands are things called necropoli, and these are the cities of the raids. Uh, and the necropoli occupy pretty much the same place as real-world cities. So while you might live in London, just on the other side of the shroud, in the Shadowlands version of London, there is a huge necropolis, which is where the raids of London live and interact and go about their various wraithly business. Imagine this as the top layer of the onion. Peel that top layer of the onion away, and underneath it, you have the Tempest, which is a deeper level of reality, a swirling storm of souls that rages for eternity. And it's swirling around and around an immense maelstrom, down in the heart of which is oblivion. And dotting the tempest are realms, places like Stygia, a huge city of, uh, of raids, tempest, places like the far shores, which may or may not be the true afterlives. And down in its heart is oblivion itself, surrounded by an immense labyrinth, and it's down there in the labyrinth, right around the wall of oblivion, where the spectres live. Spectres are wraiths gone bad, wraiths given over to oblivion, and they make the shadows of wraiths uh, look tame in comparison. Now, Black Dog, which was an imprint of White Wolf, brought out a book called Dark Reflection Spectres. And it basically details spectres from the inside out, shows you how to use them in your game, shows you how to portray them and uh, shows you how to use them in your chronicle. Now, rather than do a straight-up review of the book, um, yeah, it's a great book, okay? There, review done. Okay, right, end fine, the show. Fine. Goodbye, guys. Okay, yeah, sold. <laughs> rather than do an in-depth straight-up review, instead what we're going to do is we're going to look at what makes this book useful for your games. Not just rooms either, but other games too, because Spectres make great antagonists for all World of Darkness games. You can even get some really cool, cool use out of them for new World of Darkness games. So, what makes a spectre different from any other wraith, from any other ghost? Okay, well, as we said before, uh, a spectre is a wraith completely consumed by oblivion, who's given himself over to his shadow, or who has been claimed by the oblivion, the forces of unmaking, the absolute darkness that lies at the center of the universe. And a spectre is defined by its innate characteristics. Because it's tainted by oblivion, it's brief-lived. It's not as long. A spectre is corroding away forces bit by bit. So they live fast and they burn blazes of black glory. 
The spectre can sense oblivion, it can sense death, and is drawn characters into those places where those forces are strongest. Now, canonically, this includes vampires, mages with too much entropic resonance, possibly even some unseelie fae. So have spectres drawn to characters like this for added horror in your game. Being haunted is bad enough. Being haunted by one of these creatures is pretty much as bad as hauntings can get. A spectre's senses are dim and dull, unlike wraiths, who have very enhanced bright senses. And so they're drawn to experiences that can kick them into sensation again. So there are plenty of reasons for spectres to hang around the living and feed on their lives. However, spectres are also rapacious. If exposed to particularly strong passions, the spectre may be driven into a frenzy and attack the source of that passion in unthinking fury, seeking to destroy those things that remind it of the life it left behind. And to make this worse, spectres are connected by a hive mind. They are always in communication with other spectres. So where there is one, more will follow. This makes them like a kind of infestation. You can draw on this in your games. Non-player characters knowledgeable in spectre lore will freak out when a spectre shows up because they know that a hive of spectres may develop as a result. Now, perhaps the most interesting aspect of a spectre is its psyche, which is the inverse of a wraith's shadow. So just as a wraith has a shadow that's trying to drag it down into oblivion, destroy it completely, turn it into a spectre, by... The converse, a spectre has something called a psyche, which compels it to rise up above the darkness that defines it, compels it to seek transcendence. It's like an angel on its shoulder. So despite their darkness, spectres are conflicted, and you don't need to portray them as, you know, one-dimensional boogeymen. Even the darkest spectre has an urge to seek the light, against its will or otherwise. And this can make for interesting, unusual, and unpredictable antagonists. Player characters might find themselves working with one spectre against others, solely at the urging of the spectre's psyche. You can also contrast this with the vampire's beast, with the mage's avatar, or internal connection to the supernal, or the geist inside a sin eater. They work very much in the same kind of way. So, what types of spectre are there? Well, first up, there's the doppelgangers. These are wraiths who have been overcome by their shadows. It plays into the body snatcher concept, the enemy who looks like you, wraiths who have been hollowed out by oblivion yet are still able to pass for normal, well, normal for a wraith anyway. Mm. Uh, they spy on the Shadowlands, they mess with fetters, they torment mortals. Now they have obvious uses as an antagonist, both for wraiths and other character types. For geist players, for New World of Darkness players, you can use these as a variant on the vacant type of, uh, of NPC, something unpleasant has replaced the Sin Eater's geist, and you can then portray these in play as a doppelganger. We have the Nephrax. Nephrax are spectres so transformed by oblivion that they can no longer pass as normal. They're the priests of spectral society. They're the emissaries and heralds of oblivion. They make for good puppet masters and powerful antagonists. And you can get good mileage out of a Nephrax that used to be a doppelganger or a wraith that you once knew. Maybe a wraith who was once your ally or friend has fallen to oblivion, become a spectre, become a doppelganger, and descended even further to become a Nephrax. And you can use this to show the horror of transformation into something obscene. Now, the most inhuman of the commonly encountered spectres are known as shades. Shades are those who have fallen to oblivion in a spectacular way through a harrowing, a tempest, or one of the maelstroms that rip across the, the tempest. You can expand this list of, uh, of causes to the creation of a shade, however, and include any devastating event that changes a wraith's nature, 
For mage players, someone slain by powerful entropic magics might rise as a shade and haunt his slayer. For werewolf players, they make great spirit foes and servants of the worm. For Geist, you can use these in the underworld as weaker variants of the Chthonians or as servants of the Kerberoi, who might unleash them like a pack of dogs against their enemies. Then we have the Mortwites. Now these are kind of similar in some way to doppelgangers, similar in other ways to the Shades. Mortwites are those who fell to oblivion immediately upon death. They spent no intervening time as a wraith or anything else. They can pass as normal raids. They possess great powers over the Tempest. You can use these in similar ways to doppelgangers, but with much more sinister overtones. They're a sign of a new force in the underworld. They're the heralds of change, and they're something that even the elder specters fear. In the same way as a shade, you can have a player character or non-player character die and become a Mortwite. You know, you would use a Mortwite in your game if you want to use this character as something other than a ravening inhuman monster like a shade. Now, I mentioned Little Ghost Girls earlier on, so that brings us neatly to striplings. Uh, striplings are specters who were children that died before their 10th birthday. Yeah, creepy little ghost girls. Yay. Okay, now if the use of creepy little ghost girls is not immediately obvious, then there must be something wrong with you. Um, striplings make fantastic antagonists for games like World of Darkness Innocence. They exist to bring other children closer to oblivion and appear normal like Mortwites do. So you can have a really fearsome antagonist here who might start out as just the ghost of your poor little brother who was run over on the way to school and slowly be revealed as something far more terrifying. Uh, check out the movie The Devil's Backbone for a great portrayal of a totally scary ghost child or that really unpleasant image on page 48 of the Spectre's book. Yeah, thanks for that, White Wolf. <laughs> Mark, I noticed that a lot of people use the whole little child, little girl, even little boy when they played Changeling too or... I played in a couple of games when I was a vampire, and uh, the the storyteller used a small child to lure us to do something. Meanwhile, it was a changeling the whole time. So that's because they're inherently freaky. Mm. <laughs> Henceforth, our sound effects, right? It's a genetic thing. Yeah. Um, lastly, we have the Malfeans. These are the god kings of oblivion, ancient, monstrous. This includes things like the Onceborn creatures who became specters way back at the beginning of history and have only continued to grow in power over the course of human life. And the never-born, these things that were never born uh, and yet are tainted completely by, by oblivion, stuff that never made it into reality, stuff that has never seen the Skinlands, has known nothing but oblivion in the Tempest. Now, if you're looking for an end-of-the-world scenario antagonist, look no further. These creatures are utterly horrifying. Various elements of World of Darkness canon suggest that certain powerful dark gods of the spirit world are just the dreams of the Malfeans, which makes for some really unusual cosmological wrangling. In games like Mage the Awakening, you can use these as correlates for the Gulmoth, and you might want to check out Summoners for some great ways to portray creatures like this in your game. Now, Spectres as player characters, that's covered in a big section in the middle of the book on making Spectre characters. Won't go into too much detail on it here, except to say that it's a strong section filled with useful crunch. With a bit of work, you could adapt this material to New World of Darkness games. It does what it says on the tin, gives you the rules for making Spectre characters, and you can use this to flesh out your antagonists uh, if you want to give them the sort of depth that player characters have. Mark, the one thing I did like about the original World of Darkness or the classic World of Darkness games is that I, it seems like they were more straightforward when making characters. Like, they had a whole page, it was highlighted out, it said, this is step one, this is step two, this is step three, four, and five. And I noticed that that was 
not in the newer books, like how they had in the original system. That checklist is very handy, actually. Whenever I run an old World of Darkness game, I make a version of that checklist and give it out to my players, and we kind of default to that whenever we're making characters. You're right, it's very, very handy. I don't know why they didn't continue with that same format. Maybe they felt it was too, I don't know, like copying other systems, but I, I don't know. I thought it was a really good page in the book. I mean, you just keep on that page and you go, okay, assign this to that, this to that, go to this page, and, and then you were done and you can play. Yeah, if it ain't broke, you know. I don't know why they changed it, but I don't know. Okay, now, using specters in your chronicle, here's where the Dark Reflections book really shines. In essence, specters can feature in your games as the standard malevolent ghost, as a way to contrast less malevolent spirits with something that is truly awful, as fresh antagonists for games like Werewolf and Mage, as deeper development of the underworld for Geist, or as simply a new class of spirit that you might wish to introduce into your New World of Darkness games. It gives some really solid overviews on how to get the most out of Chronicles using Spectres. Uh, it stresses how important it is to focus on the concept of decay. Spectres themselves are decaying, and the game should reflect this. Uh, you need to make sure this comes through in the locations you choose, in the plot lines you develop, in the motivations you ascribe to your NPCs, in the descriptions you give of the game world around you. All of these should focus on the elements of corruption, of loss, of decay. And this leads to understandably really dark games even by world of darkness standards but if you fancy that kind of atmosphere then this is the supplement for you horror of course is another important element and here it's the horror of alienation and the inevitability of your own demise and this leads to one of the best emotions that i think in a horror game which is that of dread you know it's coming you know you can't stop it but you really wish you could specter games emphasize this and uh, the more that you're able to draw on that when you're running them the better Dread leads on to despair, of course, which is ideal. Uh, all of this provides an angle on why specters are so destructive. They are doomed, and in their rage, they're going to take out everyone else down with them. Despair and destruction. Uh, sorry, sounding like a Sandman comic here. Yeah. Um, despair and destruction round out the themes inherent to a good specter game. Uh, the book gives various suggestions for plots for specter games, things like conquering an Acropolis, having wars with other specters and raids playing creepy little ghost girl or even playing malfeans and taking the role of godlike monsters and prophets of oblivion at the end of the world these are all great and you can get a good chronicle or two worth of ideas from this section very highly recommended one element that it talks about that we've touched on just before that i wanted to highlight again is the idea of specters pitted against their own psyche simply put the psyche is the only thing that a specter fears it's the last remnant of its true personality to have whistled oblivion and to give in to your psyche is to face up to and admit what a worthless piece of shit you really have become. <laughs> World of Darkness games make much of the horror of being a monster. Being confronted with your psyche, though, shows you exactly what you once were and shows you exactly just how awful you have become. And even though the psyche offers salvation, to accept that salvation means to lose your own identity and cease to be. For a specter, this is a fantastic and dreadful dilemma and plays wonderfully into that old concept of realizing how awful goodness is. Building on this, there's a really important section toward the end of the book on creating the psyche, uh, stat-wise. Just as in regular Wraith games, players portray each other's shadows, so in Spectre games, they portray each other's psyches. Now, it's a short section, but it's really vital to the game, and I'd have liked to have seen more advice given on how best to portray and roleplay the psyche, and the absence of this is something of a shortcoming in the book. There's enough to get your teeth into, but it does leave you wanting more. 
Um, the book rounds out with the usual collection of templates. These are handy, but I have to confess that I almost never read these. Um, I suppose they could be useful as ready-made NPCs, though, so I guess we shouldn't discount them entirely. Oh, and because it's an old book, um, the adverts at the back really made me smile. There's a really overblown advert for Werewolf the Apocalypse going on about how the Earth Mother is wounded and her children must rage to save her. Um, there's an advert announcing the arrival of Changeling and another <laughs> proclaiming that Mage the Ascension 2nd Edition is now available. Yeah, it's happy days. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you can buy a PDF of the Spectres book from Drive RPG for the low, low price of $5. Um, it's also still available through Amazon and eBay, but it's kind of expensive. Uh, you can't beat a $5 PDF, though, so you should probably get that. Save your money for more dice instead. Go ahead. Do it. Do it now. Or a little ghost girl will come and get you. <laughs> I, I, I was looking up the prices for this book, and it was really... Uh, you To get a book now, is you're, you're out of luck, pretty much. Yeah. So your best yeah. bet is, like you said, to go get the PDF and uh, head over to Kinko's and print it up. It was like twenty five bucks on Amazon or something like that. So you know, if uh, if uh, oh, really? White Wolf can manage their print on demand option, then um, this would be a good one to uh, to put on the list. I think. I was I saw when I last looked, it was like forty something. So maybe I didn't look close enough. Well, that's a lot. Yeah, and we'll be back right after this. Darker Days Radio only on WGPRN WildGamesProductions.com. You are in a dark, cold dungeon. You see a wooden door in front of you. I open the door. The door is locked. Fine. Then I unlock the door. You have unlocked the door. Okay, now I open the door. The wooden door creaks open and there, standing in the hallway, is a goblin. Finally, something to fight. I fire an arrow at it. The goblin eats your arrow. Um, I throw a rock at it. The goblin eats the rock. How about I just punch the thing? The goblin bites your fist. You take two points of damage. Ow! I cast magic missile! The goblin cries out in pain and the body crumples to the floor. Loot the body! You discover a piece of parchment. Unraveling it, a voice emanates from it. For more things to throw at goblins, visit swingandamiss.net. Listen to our actual plays at swingandamiss.net. And now, back to Dark Days Radio with your two hosts, Vince and Mark. Only on WGPRN, WildGamesProductions.com. Well, we're back, folks, as you heard from the wonderful bumpers that we have gotten. So, uh, we're glad to be back. And we're going to head into our, our one of our... No, that's not our final section of the night, but it's uh, our New World of Darkness section of the night. And... World of Darkness 2.0. And on the docket for tonight, Mark, looks like we're going to be talking about mortals and uh, the core book of the New World of Darkness. Now, as we both know, it's the blue book, and it's the one main book for all the New World of Darkness stuff, and it mostly gets overshadowed quite a bit when you play games, because what happens when you play mortal games mostly becomes hunter games. Mark? Yeah, they oh, can very easily become like Monster of the Week hunts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think you can have trouble getting the depth of the supernatural that makes the World of Darkness special. So what we're going to do here is we're going to just uh, throw out some ideas between the two of us, and we're going to talk about it here live on the air on the show, and just uh, we're going to go on the cuff here, guys. So for the first uh, idea I was thinking about for tonight, Mark, uh, for different ways for mortals, is maybe you can have, uh, like when you were talking back 
been the Ray thing, a doppelganger thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe doppelgangers have come onto the Earth, and uh, they secretly are taking over bodies, and uh, they're trying to take over the world. Now, what are you going to do? Your your players can somehow figure this out by certain keys around there. I think the movie Invasion with uh, Kim Basinger. Mm. No, that wasn't Kim Basinger. That was Nicole Kidman. Sorry. <laughs> wrong, wrong blonde, wrong actress. Never mind. And there's there are key ways to figure that out. Uh, you can have your player, uh, the monsters dropping hints. They get sloppy, and then finally to the point when they actually just come out with it and they start attacking society. So you have to have your players hide in society and figure out a way to, you know, thwart the the evil by taking over. The, maybe finding out where the hive is or what connects this all together. Mark, what do you think about that that idea? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think what's what what makes that special for a mortals game is if you have this as something which can be affecting uh, not just mortals but can be affecting the very supernatural creatures uh, and they become a suspect, they become possessed. So it could be for example um an abyssal infection that's spreading throughout the mage community or some kind of blood disease that's, yeah. that's spreading throughout the vampire community and because the vampires are feeding on mortals it's getting into mortal society as well. The idea yeah. is though you want to find a way to focus the spotlight on the mortals. Um, so that they become the focus of the game, so that they're not yeah. overshadowed by the supernaturals. Yeah. So then, yeah, you you have an arena in which only the mortals can operate. Only they can go underground in mortal society. Only they're not going to stand out. And by extension, only they're going to be able to draw the resources together to pinpoint and and hopefully defeat this kind of uh, this kind of problem. Well, I was also thinking of another reference you can do if you want to dig back into the old movie files. Is a movie from the uh, early '80s or was mid '80s called They. Or they live actually, but we would start uh, wrestling uh, promoter uh, Roddy Roddy Piper. Remember that with Roddy the sun- Roddy Piper? Yes, WrestleMania. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the whole premise of that movie, in case uh, some of the younger listeners don't know about it, and they or they might have seen it on TV and said, "Wow, what a crappy '80s movie." But the whole premise of that movie was there was a whole alien society that has enslaved the Earth, and through subliminal messages and stuff, uh, they've taken over bodies and. Everywhere you look, if you look at your cereal box, it'll say Cheerios, but really it's telling you to stay in line and uh, act right and eat your vitamins or whatever. But there's ways of figuring out, and Roddy Piper in the movie found these pair of sunglasses, actually. Oh, that when cool. He, when he put them on, he uh, he saw what the aliens saw and what us humans just overlook all the time. So when he put the sunglasses on, he saw that certain humans were these aliens from another planet and then we looked at certain advertisements instead of it saying Dunkin Donuts or you know um, Darker Days podcast hint uh, (laughs) it said obey uh, do this do that and all these subliminal things so what he did throughout the whole movie was he tried to convince people that this was going on while wearing the sunglasses and people thought he was nuts you know obviously and so he finally figured out where the whole brain network was coming from, a TV studio that was transmitting from into outer space. So he wound up destroying it, and everybody just went, what? And went back to normal, so. Well, that's really interesting because that allows you to give your mortal characters uh, something that, that sets them apart from other from from the rest of the world, you know? They've stumbled onto this secret. They've discovered the the glasses or whatever, whatever you know, whatever the... Uh, the MacGuffin is that you're going to use in your game. They have the, the you know the special magic thing that allows them to see the danger that no one else can see, and that really allows you then to build up and ramp up the paranoia. Um, so yeah, so your characters are going to be running scared while they're trying to uh, to fight the good fight at the same time. So I think there's yeah cheesy as it may be, there's some good ideas that you can lift from there. 
Thanks for uh, calling it cheesy, Mark. I appreciate it. <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper, not cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Uh, it, building upon other ideas that were, I'm just thinking over the top of my head is, say you wanted to do something that involves a little more supernatural, a little more uh, to the occult. Now, Mark, you had written down something, investigators of the cult. Not really X-Files-ish, but maybe they're working into helping the supernatural out. So there's, yeah, of, there's a couple of ideas that I thought about yeah. along those lines. Well, yeah. we don't care about your ideas. We're talking about this idea. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, just think, <clears throat> instead of like you normally hunting down the supernatural, maybe the supernatural come to you for help. So maybe yeah. a vampire comes to you and he's lost something he needs you to find. So instead of you finding the vampire and killing it, you're finding something for him. Think the Dresden Files. Right. All those books. Yeah. Think of uh, the TV show that came out for one season and bombed terribly on Sci-Fi Network. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Dresden, what he basically was doing was helping out various supernaturals in different ways and helping protect the identity of the supernatural world from the humans. So maybe that could be another campaign itself right there. Yeah, well, the that ties into uh, to, to the idea of the kind of underground railroad that uh, that I jotted down earlier on here. Um, what I liked about this is you have the idea is that the the player characters are helping out rogue or vulnerable elements in the supernatural community, you know, keeping them safe or keeping them secret from those who might do them harm. Um, so yeah, you could have ideas that the your characters are freeing ghouls from slavery to their vampiric masters or finding ways to rehabilitate them. Uh, maybe there's been a magical war behind the scenes of the local society and the player characters are helping the losers find refuge in another land. Maybe it's something as simple as helping raids or specters find their way into the afterlife and achieve peace. But yeah, like you say, the core concept here is the player characters. The mortal, there are, are mortals who are helping supernatural creatures who can't help themselves. Um, and more than, than that, though, they're doing so because of dire threats to the existence of their supernatural friends. There are other beings out there, hunters, members of the Inquisition, vengeful vampires, who would happily kill, imprison, or eat the player characters for meddling things they should keep their noses out of. Yeah. And I think an important thing here is that you would need to develop sympathetic and usable supernatural creatures uh, for the player characters to help. Uh, but at the same time, you also need to devise antagonists so horrifying that fighting them is just not an option. Um, so goes back to the idea of specters from earlier in the show, uh, or things like the Akamoth or uh, embodied paradox spirits, um, or an ancient and powerful vampire who wants his playthings back. Uh, in this kind of story, a strong antagonist that actually is more important than a believable ally, makes the darkness more terrifying, and uh, makes the characters want to help their companions all the more fervently. Well, if you want to think of uh, maybe uh, player characters helping in um, a supernatural, think of, uh, what, what was it, oh, tip of my tongue, Michelle, Sarah Michelle Gellar TV show with uh, David Perrins. What, what the hell was the name of that show? Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> I couldn't think of the name. <laughs> I couldn't think of her name. Leave me alone. Just think of how the, the whole entire uh, show, how he, Angel, was a vampire, but yet he was always helping Buffy and Buffy was always helping him. Because he was a vampire with his soul, so that contradicts the whole vampire thing. So right, no, that's exactly the kind of thing. Yeah, precisely. So maybe you want to do, you know, uh, kind of like a mortal slayer, and he's helping a, a vampire regain his mortality, somewhat to speak. You know, yeah, a yeah. angel no, style. Right, just, exactly. Just, just not as gay, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, riffing on a, on another uh, um, f famous kind of World of Darkness trope, um, if you're a fan of Anne Rice and you've read her Mayfair Witches books, 
Um, you could take the idea of your mortal characters are members of a family that has long-standing connections to the occult. Uh, maybe they have a history of being witches. Maybe great-grandfather was an archmage. Maybe they're haunted by an ancient spirit who's decided to watch over the family for reasons of his own. Um, whatever the case, the idea with this approach is that the characters know about the supernatural world. Indeed, they've been raised with full knowledge of it. Uh, this sets them apart from other mortals. Um, you could give them certain supernatural merits or allow them to use some of the few uh, magic systems in books like Second Sight or Hedge Magic if you're an Old World Adonis player. Um, so uh, particularly the, the first uh, Anne Rice book in the, Witching, in the Mayfair Witches book, uh, The Witching Hour, is a great source of inspiration for this kind of chronicle. Uh, it allows you to, to tell all sorts of different kinds of story. You can go all out um, and really kind of take the whole Anne Rice approach and have a classic tale that spans centuries covering the whole dynasty of the family. Set some sessions in the present, for example, then flash back 100 years to play other characters from the past. Establish what magical secrets and connections of the family are and show how these manifest and develop in different time periods. And if, like with the Mayfair Witches, you're talking about an ancient family ghost, you want to explore how its attitudes and motivations change from one era to the other. Um, and also, if, the, you know, if you play with the idea that there are other groups out there who also know about the family and are maybe less than friendly or want something from it, you could develop that. Keeping the family mysteries a secret is a big part of this kind of chronicle. And again, you can play up the paranoia. Um, a thing that you've got to make sure that you should do, I think, in this kind of game, though, is to emphasize the familial bonds you know, you want your player characters to care about the family they're they're part of, to feel their connections to their relatives matter. They need to feel they have something worth preserving, something worth keeping secret, something worth saving. Um, and by comparison, you also need to make sure that the family's supernatural patron is well-defined, be it a family ghost, a long-lived mage, or vampiric ancestor. Um, ideally, you want this individual to be friendly to the player characters, but you can get good use out of revealing that they might also have uh, sinister motives. Now, if you do that, they'll be aware that turning on the revelation that uh, your patron is actually quite a sinister individual will turn the player characters against him pretty damn quickly. Um, <laughs> so you need to be sure that you want the game to take that kind of approach uh, if you uh, turn the tables on them in that way. Well, yeah, I was thinking maybe you can use this, um, think of it as what you can you take one of the players in the group and then you can you know, switch it up, obviously, as the game goes on. But say there is a, a spirit and he, he latches onto one of the players and starts guiding the players to help find various things for supernaturals or for even humans, for that matter. And it helps the players uh, go on quests, like I said. And then he jumps for another player and starts turning the group against each other, like, playing them on each other's secrets and everything you know something like that yeah, or you could you could depending on how your actual players are you could decide whether to do that out in the open or whether to actually physically take the player off to one side and oh, yeah you know hand them a note or uh, if you're playing over the net shoot them a private message and i think it depends on your playing group some groups i've played in groups where there are no secrets around the table. Everybody just makes sure they keep their character knowledge free of their player knowledge. And so somebody who knows their character is being betrayed, although the character doesn't know it, they will willingly walk their character into treachery, into an ambush, just for the thrill of seeing it play out at the table, even though they know that Bob across the table has just stiffed them completely. That you know They're totally getting into it as well and seeing how it will pan out. Uh, uh, by comparison, there are other groups who it's all got to be done by notes. Nobody can know, actually know anything what's going on. And you get a much more sort of uh, obfuscated, paranoid angle at the table. So, yeah, see which one of those works best, I suppose. I think the note uh, method or bringing a person out of a room works quite 
effectively because I don't know the group that I was playing in and when we did everything out in the open like you said Mark no secrets you can tell like certain players were getting pissed at each other if like yeah. oh wow you betrayed me so you look, you look at the person in a different way like you know side eyed or whatever the hell you call it cock eyed mm-hmm. and I don't know it's just it was a weird feeling so when it was on notes and stuff it was a lot easier to betray somebody <laughs> you don't have well, to I have to know. say I've only had one group where that worked and it all you know, all the other groups has always been covertly done with notes. One group, there was just a sort of, a kind of a, a level of shared trust, really, that you, you know that the other person may stiff you over from time to time, but they're going to do it in a way that's just going to benefit the story, and you kind of happily walk into that. Uh, another idea of building off this I was just thinking about, uh, say you have a smaller group, maybe you have two or three players in the group that one night, you could do this as a one-shot. Uh, think of that TV show with Jennifer Love Hewitt when she uh, is able to contact the dead. Well, they contact her. Maybe you can have one of the players uh, aware of the dead, and they have to do special things for the dead to help them cross over to the other side. I can't think of the name of the show. Ghost Whisperer, is that That's it. Thank you. You're really batting a thousand tonight, Mark. I'm, I'm, I'm hitting them out the park, aren't I? Yeah, but you can have a, you can have a player that's uh, um, that has the ability to sense the dead, and maybe the dead are drawn because they could see them, and then you have to do special quests and help the uh, person cross over to the other side. I think that's a pretty cool idea, actually. Yeah, a group of media, well, like you say, two or three players, uh, a group of mediums who are based around uh, channeling uh, messages from the dead. Well, uh, as you say, they made an entire TV show out of it. Yeah. And you can you can riff on that with, with other supernatural types. You could have the characters, instead of being mediums who, who follow a group of ghosts or help ghosts, you could have the characters are all ghouls in service to a vampire. Or they could be acolytes who are, mm. who are cultists, uh, you know, learning at the feet of an actual mage. Um, but yeah, the idea there is you have one or two powerful supernatural individuals who are kind of the lords and masters or, or patrons or employers or, or um, mission or gift givers. And the player characters are kind of yeah, relatively weak and feeble mortals uh, doing their bidding, more or less, in one way or the other. I think that could work quite well. Uh, there's there's tons and tons of TV shows and movies you can base ideas off of. Uh, another one off the top of my head, and and don't kill me for saying it, Mark, but <laughs> Charmed. Charmed. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I only watched it because of the hot chicks in the first couple seasons, all right? I haven't watched it since then. That's a perfectly acceptable reason. Okay. I, I fell in the, with the phenomenon of everybody else. Wow, three hot chicks on WB, so... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, you were talking about the uh, the acolytes. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just saying, uh, just saying that um, uh, if you take the idea of of acolytes, and that can that can be broadly applied to medium serving a ghost, ghoul serving a vampire, cultist serving a mage. Um, there, you've got a, you've got a lot of flexibility in what kinds of stories come out of it, and it uh, it depends on what the, who the supernatural masters are. Uh, ghouls will experience stories similar to those of a vampire game. Magical cultists might brush up against the supernal realities of the mage setting, um, and politics and power plays are going to be a central issue to this kind of game. Though, as the characters jockey for position and favor in the eyes of their mentors. Hmm. Um, Another idea, a good one here, Mark, that you had written down was the uh, like working for the military or the government the the department of occult warfare i've yeah. been trying to sell this to i don't know how many groups over the years and nobody wants to play it and i'm really? just dying to do it go go expand your idea because i'm a little confused well, on what you're talking yeah. about the the idea is that you you can with this you can kind of get back into sort of decent monster bashing territory right uh, 
here the characters are members of a military group that is dedicated to dealing with supernatural threats. You know, they can be an out-and-out combat group, like the Jericho squad from Clive Barker's Jericho game. Mm-hmm. Um, or they can be a... <laughs> <laughs> Had to throw that in there, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. See what I did there, it's very subtle. Yeah. Uh, a special forces team skilled in infiltration and espionage, um, an assassination detail. Uh, the idea, anyway, is that the military takes immediate and definite steps to deal with this series of supernatural problems. Um, now, from a story perspective, this idea lets you direct the flow of the game with ease. Because the characters are part of the military chain of command, they go where their superiors tell them. Um, now, of course, if those superiors are revealed to have been compromised, then you can have a new element in the game. Maybe the characters have to go rogue, for example, or are chased by mundane military elements who don't understand the truth behind their predicament. I, I was looking at this and I was thinking, uh, actually, if you refer to comic books, Checkmate, in the I don't uh, know that one. Uh, Checkmates a, was a government organization that was trying to uh, find the superheroes that were in the world, and they were taking them and using them for military means. So, okay, cool. think of it this way: the military organization you work for, you were trying to hunt down the supernaturals and make them work for the government for your evil needs, or well, the government's evil needs. Interesting. Wow. Well, I just got through reading Watchmen, which plays on some of those similar ideas, where the uh, yeah, where superheroes are outlawed if they don't work for the government. So I think that could uh, you could extend that into the supernatural elements of the world of darkness, and that could work very, very well. Yeah, I, I like the idea of that actually, Mark. Uh, you sold me, so let's play. Good, good. Well, you know, the, the other <laughs> thing I'd note about it is you do you do want to avoid letting it devolve into a monster of the week game. You know, today we're fighting Kerberoi. Next week we'll be fighting Black Spiral Dancers. Next week it's going to be Malfay and Spectres, you know. Uh, instead, you want to, I think, take a bit of time to decide on what types of supernatural threats you're going to be using in the game and keep it focused. Um, you might want to set an overarching chronicle arc, for example, and decide that the game is about, uh, I don't know, infiltrating and destroying a cabal of vampires who are running a drugs cartel deep in the Central American jungles. Or, or perhaps there's a mage who has insinuated himself into a third world government and is subverting a local civil war as part of a large-scale sacrifice to his abyssal masters. Or you can have a group of Sin Eaters who are part of a paramilitary group of their own, and the characters are tasked with pursuing them and bringing them to justice. And if you keep this focus, it prevents the game from becoming a parody of itself and, you know, just kind of wars with guns, and it maintains the impact of the original concept. I think that would work really well. There's there's tons of things you can do with Mortals games. I mean, there's so many fan supplements out there that you can just pick up, grab ideas from. Like, henceforth, I've seen Star Wars. Oh, wow. Made into World of Darkness, even though... Oh, sorry. Wizards of the Coast dropped the license now, so maybe... They did. Oh, yeah. It's ending as of, I think, the end of this year. Uh, they decided not to renew with LucasArts, or LucasArts decided not to renew with them. So, I've been... Uh, putting a little uh, paw around White Wolf headquarters, asking Eddie Webb about do you think maybe that, you know, White uh, CCP is going to diverge into the uh, Lucas uh, and because, you know, Star Wars would be perfect for the storyteller system. It's got that narrative element to yeah. it, but at the same time, a, yeah, a good bit of action, so I suppose that would work. Uh, I, when I was talking to Eddie about it, he, well, he didn't say yes or no, but he said he didn't hear anything about that, so that more than likely means no, I don't think they have I don't think LucasArts will go with them. I don't think LucasArts is interested in a role-playing game right now anyway, so that's probably why the license expired. Yeah, I think it, if it hasn't been a big earner for them, then they're, they're going to they're gonna want to use the IP in a more productive way, I suppose. Um, 
But I think what what unites all the kind of ideas that we've been coming up with just now is is that you need to find a way to to make the mortals relevant. You need to make them stand on their own. You need to find a way to to allow them to function in a way that they're not overshadowed by the supernatural. Uh, that it's not just let's go hunt monsters. That they can develop their own strong stories, their own strong identities, and strong plot lines. Uh, and I think that, if anything else, should be your kind of core concern when you're looking for inspiration for a Mortals game, because uh, then the players are going to come away from it and they're going to remember what the mortal characters did, as opposed to all the crazy supernatural stuff that was going on around them. Uh, which I think is, you know, I think that's what you want. Well, all right. Uh, I think we have one last idea on here. You said it was the railroad one, right? Yeah, well, I, ma- I mentioned that up at the beginning. That yeah. was the idea of um, characters helping out rogue or vulnerable elements in the supernatural community. Um, but, I mean, you can you can riff on that in, in a couple of different ways. Um, and uh, the, with, if you de- Sorry, if you just develop the idea of mortal characters helping... Uh, uh, supernatural creatures you know you can you we mentioned um uh government bodies uh to talk about cheesy movies you could play with the idea if you remember the movie men in black yeah uh, the agents in that film oh. they worked alongside the aliens helping them integrate into society and you don't need to be mm. as silly as that film but the concept works well especially on a small scale if you just limit it down to a, a city a city block yeah. where there's a small supernatural population your characters are concerned in just helping these creatures maintain normal lives um, you know what's even more sillier than that, Mark? What? That the fact that they're making a third movie out of that. Oh, oh well, who's going to be in it? I read they've got some new actor to appear in it alongside Will Smith. I can't remember his name now. I, I don't remember it offhand now, but it's supposed to be 3D, and I was just like, why? <laughs> 3D, what a surprise. Yeah, I know, shocker. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe you... Actually, that's kind of a cool idea, helping the supernatural uh, in an underground railroad. Yeah, like... Like slavery, remember how they they hid the slaves under the ground and they had to help them to safety? Maybe you got to bring werewolves to a special society for werewolves or vampires. You have to hide them because there's tons of hunters out there. Things like well, that. I originally I originally got the idea from the idea of, of ghouls trying to get free from vampires. But yeah, yeah, the oh, the, wow. the, the underground slave railroad is exactly that's where the the concept came from for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, there's tons of ideas out there. If you go to the White Wolf forums, you can find an abundance of ideas in the Mortal section or the general World of Darkness section. Uh, just another idea off the top of my head, you can actually, without picking up the Exalted book, design your own D&D type campaign. I've wanted to do that a lot, actually. I keep thinking about it, and then I think, well, why don't I just go play Exalted? But, you know, It's because yeah. Exalted is... Um, I like Exalted, but it's just complex in various ways. Why bother well, learning a new system if you just have the same system? You just yeah, make true. it, you know, D&D I, terms. I tell you what's a good resource for that, actually, then, is the uh, the, the core rules. It's more for Old World of Darkness players. The core rules for Vampire of the Dark Ages. They they released yeah. uh, somewhere, and it's somewhere on the White Wolf site, actually. The core rules for the Dark Ages system, you know, stripped out of any. There's nothing, no reference to vampires or mages or what have you. But it's just the basic rules for making a character in the Dark Ages setting. And I think if you wanted to play a fantasy game uh, in the World of Darkness setting, Old World of Darkness, that would be a great place to start. Because, you know, you've got your armor, your weapons, your, your yeah. various merits and flaws and, uh, and abilities and stuff. That would be a, yeah. good, a good framework around which to hang it. I think just take the, the Mortals book, design your own D&D type campaign, and grab the, uh, the Armory, one of the Armory books. I believe one of them has medieval weapons in it, doesn't it? Yeah, and also Second Sight. We yes. reviewed that a few episodes ago. The magic system in Second Sight, 
one wonderful thing that you can plug in to give a more kind of low fantasy feel yeah. uh, as opposed to the crazy over the top stuff that happens in mage the second sight approach i think would probably be a lot better well, there you so have your core book armory and second sight there you go there you <laughs> have it. your your custom D campaign mark that you can run on world of darkness setting without having to learn anything new yeah, there we go outstanding i expect to hear a full report next show okay <laughs> I think we're going to have our hands full next show. There'll be time for that. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but let's get into our last segment of the night. Uh, Hold on one second. And now it's time for Storyteller Advice with Mark and Vince. Got to get our traditional music in there. I've missed that music. Yes, I bet you have. (laughs) (laughs) So tonight on the... The docket once again. Uh, I love that little word, docket. Docket, that's the word of the night. Yes. Docket. Uh, no, it's not Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse. But anyway, uh, this is Storyteller Advice. Uh, it's called You Again. And I guess Vergas had posted this in the forums, right? He, he sent an email about this. Oh, about, was, uh, I, I, I think actually, embarrassingly enough, he sent it about six months ago. Oh, <laughs> and it's, it keeps getting bumped. Um, but yeah, he sent in... Um, a submission with ideas for storyteller advice, okay. and so I thought, high time we we got it out on the air, and uh, and yeah, share some of his ideas. Um, basically, the idea of you again is how to re- how to show and use recurring NPCs and recurring antagonists in your games. Um, now, behind the scenes of many stories. There are antagonists pulling the strings that players must thwart. Films and fiction are littered with adversaries for the heroes. Uh, many of them have adversaries that recur and still work. You think of Imhotep from the Mummy movies or Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes novels uh, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, but how do you go about creating these guys? Well, following now are several tips on how to make your antagonists, your recurring antagonists, more memorable and engaging. Well, he listed out actually six different steps here, and we're going to go over them a little bit for you. Uh, the mm-hmm. first one is he listed as method, but I like to call it the motivation. Yeah. Like, what's your what's your motivation? And by the way, a very good book for fleshing out characters is you can pick up any book about screenplays or writing yes. movie plays or teleplays or audio plays, whatever you want to call them. Excellent books because they go into real details how to flesh out various characters for movies or TV shows. So... If you want to just grab one of those books, you see it in like a bargain bin, grab it, give it a nice read, and it'll help you flesh out various characters, even though, you know, you're not writing a play, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's the same kind of uh, philosophy going on there. So first you want to figure out its method or its motivation. What is this big bad guy? What is this monster? Maybe he's not a monster. Maybe he's a good guy, actually. Who knows? But Mm. what is he, how does he tie in with the campaign, and how can you get the players involved with him entirely? So, uh, let's think of a big bad guy, uh, Darth Vader, for example, Mark. and yeah, uh the ultimate. The ultimate bad guy. And uh, let's think of different ways how he would uh, extract information from people. What would he use? He would use his uh, force grip. He would use his lightning. Uh, he would threaten Princess Leia <laughs> in that infamous scene from the first Star Wars movie where he went all out and uh, said he would destroy Alderaan. Yeah, right. And what's what's useful about that is, and I think it's one of the reasons why uh, Fergus used the use the, the word method is by by demonstrating the guy's method, you show his motivation. Yeah. So uh, in these scenes where he, you know he starts off, he questions her about the rebels, and then he uses torture on her, yeah. uh, then he uses threats, and then he coerces her, and ends up destroying her home planet. Right. Um, so this these this his, this methodology shows you his motivations, uh, but also shows you that he will stop at nothing to achieve his goals. 
Um, so right, uh, it's and it's it's a, a roundabout way of, of using the old kind of cliche of show don't tell. You don't need somebody to stand there and tell you Darth Vader will stop at nothing. You know, uh, after you see these scenes, you know it. You know that there's nothing that's going to hold this guy back. So in a world of darkness game, you know, if you have a tyrannical prince of a city, uh, you can have him behaving in the same way, threatening, torturing, harming people uh, close to his foes in order to achieve his aims. Right. So then you would go to appearance, which is uh, a pretty big one, because not every um, antagonist has to have the traditional, you know, evil, dark-looking scars, missing a limb, slash on the arm, things like that. You know, he could be... Um, I don't know. He could be Mark, for example, typical everyday person, or he could yep. be uh, a CEO of a business. You would never know. Someone dressed in an Armani suit, or he could be the bum in the, that corner street that you see every day when your characters go to say, talk to one of their contacts. You just see this bum every day. Maybe he is the antagonist the whole time. Exactly. Uh, one of the most important things, though, I think, is even if you don't go for an overblown, you know twirling moustache and black cape or uh, scars and, and a cyborg arm or what have you <laughs> um, uh, what's important is that you find something about it that's memorable so if it's a bum on the street give him a certain mannerism or phrase or an old battered top hat that he always wears a little tag for, to, to, for the characters to hang their recollection of him off uh, the Armani uh, suit for example just take a couple of moments to describe that each time maybe it's a different style of suit each time but the characters will, yeah. the players sorry will tag that in their memory Yes, but don't um, go too nuts with it because <laughs> I know with my group, if I go, if I just say one wrong thing about any NPC, it becomes the Inquisition. <laughs> yeah, like I had a couple NPCs and they just, they, he was just sitting there doing nothing. And because I said he glances at you, that that became the player's mission to find out why he glanced at you. <laughs> oh, no. And I had to make a lot of NPCs on the fly to involve in a campaign because... My players are just trying to extract information out of a useless NPC. Outstanding. <laughs> so, sometimes players. you got to roll with them. it. Yeah. Got um, props uh, are handy here. You know, if you happen to have a battered top hat, I had a player whose character uh, always dressed in suits, and one session he decided that he was going to come in this top notch, uh, top dollar suit uh, to to really get into it. I only did it once, but uh, it worked really well. Uh, music's good too. If if you use music in your games. Um, and you give the character a certain theme tune. You know, Darth Vader's march is the uh, the Imperial march is the classic one. But if you find some small piece of music that you can play when that when that character or that antagonist is on the scene, you'll find that works really well. And then, supposing several sessions down the line, you're describing a crime where no one really knows what's going on, you start playing that guy's music in the background. The players are going to make the connection immediately. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute, this was probably uh, Bob the Cyborg behind this because that's his music playing in the background. Bob um, the Cyborg, Mark. Uh, okay. <laughs> you couldn't think of a better name than Bob the no, Cyborg? No, I just ran flat out of juice there. Oh, wow. <laughs> Speaking about use and usage, uh, proper ways to use your antagonist. Now, he also wrote down... One of the important points of our recurring tactics is, is a little goes a long way, meaning yes. don't have him constantly hounding the players. Don't have him constantly showing up, annoying the players or fighting the players. Have him every once in a while do something, leave a clue, maybe pop up for a quick fight, throw his minions in, and he runs away, and then you won't see him for another game or so. Like, you want your players saying... Oh my god, it's him again. Let's beat the crap out of him. Or I really want to kill this guy. Not, uh, 
It's this guy again. It's Bob s- again. Yeah, right. Bob the Cyborg again. Yeah. A perfect example of an annoying antagonist is, think of the PlayStation 2 game, Resident Evil 2, uh, where the, uh, the nemesis monster kept showing up every five seconds going, stars, stars, and wanting <laughs> to kill your character. I mean, there was a whole point to the plot, but it was annoying after a while. So, yeah, and a, a good World of Darkness that? example of that is uh, Samuel Haight. Who yes. Was, well, we covered him a couple of episodes ago and showed how, in fact, Sammy has some good elements in his story that you can enrich your game with. But as he was used, yeah, he was very much overused. So, oh, it's Samuel Haight again. Hooray. So, yeah, <laughs> definitely. A little goes a long way. And then next he has the power level or um, how you would design him compared to the group as, an, as a whole. So what you want to do here in this section is you want to design your antagonist so he's more powerful than the group, but not so much that he can't handle, that the group can't handle him. So um, just think of your most powerful player in the group, which I automatically know in my group who that is. <laughs> and I know exactly, I, like I could pick off my group. I know exactly. I have one player that's going to be always the strong fighter type guy. Picks everything powerful in combat. I have another guy that's going to pick almost everything the same way and may add yeah. a touch of the magic or something into it. And then I have another player that's going to go totally the nerdy route and that's going to do all the computer hacking and cool. become the super genius and maybe even the the, uh, the healer or the mage. And then the fourth player is just going to be a random pick. But I know my group enough that I know how to design an NPC or an antagonist, I should say, so they can fight it. So important point about number four here at the power level is know your group. Yes, absolutely. Very important. And know the system too. I mean, you know, yeah. World of Darkness doesn't... In a D&D game, you have things like challenge ratings and encounter levels, and the system is put together in such a way that you can get a rough idea of how it's going to work out. World of Darkness, it's a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, so you yeah, you need to get a bit of a handle on the system. You need to be able to eyeball it. Uh, and you need to be able to change it up on the fly if it turns out that you know, you've created your rank six black spiral dancer and uh, oh whoops this is perhaps a little bit too powerful here um just dial it back a little bit you know uh, the players hopefully yeah. will not catch on and uh, you learn from that and don't make the same mistake next time a, a good book and um david hill brought this up in one of our, his first appearances on our podcast was uh oh, what the heck was it called vampire for dummies Vampire the Requiem for Dummies. I know it's a stupid book and you would be embarrassed to be caught holding it in your hands as a world of darkness player but it has a lot of good ideas in it. I haven't seen that. It's good, eh? It's a very good book, and I got it for 99 cents. Oh, cool. <laughs> I saw it in a bargain bin, and I quickly hid in the shadows and bought the book, <laughs> ran home, went under the covers with a flashlight, and I uh, I read the book, and so you can all call me a loser, but whatever. It had some great ideas for my campaign in fleshing out characters and fleshing out antagonists, so eh. If there's good stuff in there, then there's good stuff in there, you know. Yeah, but yeah. still, do you want to be caught with a book like that? You don't know what I would want to be caught with. Oh my god! Yeah, I I know what you like, Mark. So no, I don't want to know now. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, <laughs> good or evil, Mark? You want to take this one? Yeah. Now, what I like about this is it plays into the idea of few people will actually describe themselves as evil, right? Uh, most people, in their own mind, they're the hero. Um, again, as they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So this is a great phrase to have in mind when you're considering this point. Um, 
A good example is Gabriel from Constantine, uh, or in fact, Gabriel from the Prophecy uh, as well. <laughs> Poor Gabe. Um, a character who sets out with good intentions, but along the way, the purity of his actions becomes corrupted. Now, if you can get yourself into the head of your antagonist and figure out what the antagonist wants and hopefully make these motivations and these desires believable, uh, then when he comes to portraying them, when you come to portraying them, ideally the antagonist will come across as somebody that the players can empathize with, even though they may not agree with his methodology and, and, and his, uh, his way of going about things. They might be able to find something in there that they can kind of say, well... He's kind of got a point, you know. Uh, he may well have just wiped out half of our cabal, but on the other hand, we can see what he what he uh, what he's after there. And this can then lead to games where uh, a huge knockdown fight on the top of a skyscraper with the bad guy may not be the preferred outcome. Mm. Your your characters, your players may decide. Actually, um, given that we can understand some of where he's coming from, let's try and find a way that we can meet this guy halfway. Maybe we can turn him away from his ruinous uh, his ruinous means and methods, and see if we can't help him get what he wants through some other solution. Um, so yeah, uh, keeping the uh, keeping the antagonist believable and you know, blurring the, uh, the 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 line a little bit between good and evil can allow you to uh, to enrich the games as a consequence. Uh, when I was looking at this example, I was thinking of Anakin Skywalker, but then you just ruined it by whatever you just said, Mark. So, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Freeze in that uh, third or fourth Batman movie, he's like that too. Uh, hey, all right, man, the podcast is over now. Laying Mark. on the cheese tonight. Yeah, you're really laying it on thick, Mark, and uh, <laughs> I think I'm ending it on that now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, like you said, a lot of players refuse to say they're good or evil, hero or not. And I can't stand players that, that like to pick that path of, I'm crazy, so I could be good or evil at any point. All my characters are going to be good or evil. Yeah, no. I hate that. I just, I hate that alignment in D&D called chaotic neutral. Chaotic neutral. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. And I'm going to say it again. I hate that. <laughs> Everybody, and ugh, they pick that alignment and they're like, oh, I could be good or I could be evil. It doesn't matter. It depends on what type of Batman I am today. <laughs> you like my Christian Bale impression there? That's very good. I yeah, intimidated. Uh, you better be. Uh, let's go. <laughs> let's go on to our last one. The good bad. Uh, good bad guys never die. Uh, was the final thing he puts in there. It's always good to uh, trick your players into thinking that they've killed the bad guy. Uh, perfect examples of this would be I'm sorry, I killed the bad guy and yet he shows back up in the final reel or the final episode or the final segment of your game mm-hmm. uh, think of uh, you know your famous killers and slashers in the movies like Freddy or Jason or Michael Myers hey I killed you, what are you doing back things like that yeah, exactly. Um, I think, uh, and there are ways, you know, there are plenty of ways to get around this. Um, you can have uh, a classic example to riff on stuff we've done in the show today already, is you have your guy dies and comes back as a Wraith or a Spectre. Uh, yeah, and now you can't kill him. Now there's, there's nothing there to kill. He's already dead. Mm. Um, vampires who get uh, blown 10 ways to Sunday and all that does to them is knocks them into torpor. They're able to recover from their <laughs> wounds and come back. And it, you know, it's difficult to do, but if handled well, it can be very memorable for your party. Uh, as a caveat to this, though, I would say you've also got to know when not to bring him back. You've got to know when, when bringing him back will actually just deflate the character's sense of achievement. If they've pulled out all the stops to completely hammer the guy into the ground <laughs> and, and they're 
they are high fiving each other around the table, and it's you know it's the best moment of their of of their gaming careers, and you know it's the crowning pinnacle of your of your current chronicle. Don't screw it up by bringing him back, because <laughs> <laughs> they will not be they will not thank you for it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a bit of a of a of a juggling act to uh, to take into account there, I think. Okay, cool. I yeah. think that's about going to wrap everything up for tonight. If you have any questions, uh, Mark, what's your email address? Don't. Oh, you wear chickened on me. Let's do that one more time, Mark. Radio at gmail.com. Good, you didn't wear chicken on me that time, Mark. That's good. <laughs> uh, you can take a... Um, Go to our website, darkerdays.tk, and you can download all our episodes, uh, including all our Darkling podcasts, or you can go to wildgameproductions.com and uh, just go chat in our forums. Uh, we have various uh, shows on there that are just as, as much hiatus as us, except for Mirage Arcana, which they're pumping out the episodes, embarrassing everybody else. So They're doing a great job. Well, I think that's going to end things for tonight. Uh, been a good show tonight, Mark. Yes, yeah, so ends episode 19. That was a lot of fun, Vince. It's good to be uh, back on the road. Yeah, and I think next week uh, is going to be, not, I don't think, not next week, but <laughs> towards the end of this month, it'll be our one-year show. We're going to yes. have various guests. Uh, it's going to be a, kind of like a free-form, like episode 13 was, kind of a roundtable discussion with uh, different talks of various drinking games going on during the show. I don't know if that's going to happen, but there's going to be... Uh, Freelancers versus White Wolf staffers. Yes, we shall cry havoc and unleash the dogs of awesome. Yeah, uh, there's, there's, hey, you never know what's going to happen. Maybe someone in White Wolf will slip up because uh, they're playing a drinking game and they might say something live on the show that they don't want you to hear and we'd have to edit it out anyway. So, <laughs> so Mark and I might get some good information. You won't. Ha, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so visit us, drop us an email, tell us what you think. Uh, so, and Mark, you're going to release a, uh, a Darkling real soon, yes, right? Yes, I'll be uh, shooting out Darkling in number nine, I think, with that uh, coverage of Vampire the Eternal Struggle uh, midway through next week. So keep your ears open for that. All right. Uh, this is uh, Vince signing off for Mark. Have a good night, everybody. <laughs>